The Care Matters podcast is brought to you by the ESRC Centre for Care and CIRCLE, the Centre for International Research on Care, Labour and Equalities. In this series, our researchers welcome experts in the field and those giving or receiving care to discuss crucial issues in social care as we collectively attempt to make a positive difference to how care is experienced and provided. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the Care Matters podcast series hosted by the Centre for Care. My name is Becky Driscoll and I'm one of the research associates at the Centre, which is hosted by the University of Sheffield. So my role is focused on making sure that we use our evidence to influence policy across all four nations of the UK. So often this means responding to government consultations, parliamentary inquiries, and really looking for opportunities to shape the public debate on what care looks like. So I'm really excited that this episode is going to focus on the European Union Care Strategy, which was formally adopted uh, in December 2022. Now, while the UK is obviously no longer a member of the European Union, at the Centre for Care, we're very keen to have an international perspective. um, And indeed, we've got lots of international research partners that we look to work with really collaboratively. And it's really important to all of us at the Centre that we look to learn from new approaches um, in different countries around the world as much as possible. So this episode, I'm really delighted to welcome two excellent guests to talk to me today about the EU care strategy. So we're joined by uh, Stacey Evgenimos and Zoe Hughes. I'm really looking forward to a great conversation, both of you today. By means of introduction, Stacey is the executive director of Eurocarers, which is a European network working with and for informal or unpaid carers. Eurocarers brings together over 70 organisations from 25 countries around Europe who work collectively together to ensure that the growing care needs of the European population are addressed in a universal and equitable way and that the vital contribution that carers make is valued, recognised and supported. Zoe is a senior policy and research officer working for Care Alliance Ireland, which is a national network of voluntary organisations supporting family carers in Ireland. She joined the organisation in 2015 with qualifications in social work, social policy and disability studies. And she's previously worked with a number of different academic and voluntary sector organisations. So he's particularly interested in the topic of diversity with caring, along with inclusive and participatory research methods. She uh, coordinates policy and research functions of Care Alliance Ireland, and she's written an award-winning discussion paper series, which aims to bring together sort of less discussed or perhaps more challenging topics forward for consideration by professionals who support family carers. She also somehow manages to find the time to undertake her doctoral work at University College Cork, where she's focusing on the topic of family care within the LGBTQIA plus community. So with no further ado, I'll perhaps come to you first, Stacey. And it would be great if you could perhaps give us a bit of sort of background to the EU care strategy. So if you could summarise for us briefly what it's all about and why it's come about in 2022. Sure. Um, hello, everyone. And first of all, thanks, Milan, for having me uh, as a contributor to the, to the series. 
So the European care strategy was put forward, as you said, by the Commission uh, actually a few months ago already, but it was formally approved uh, earlier uh, in December. So it is a proposal put forward with two main objectives. The first one is to boost access to good quality, affordable and accessible care services across the EU. And the second objective is to improve working conditions and work-life balance for carers, both professional and informal. So the strategy uh, has a life course perspective, and so it focuses both on childcare and long-term care, even though, of course, our focus is primarily on, on long-term care. For those of us who are familiar with the EU decision-making process, um, the strategy package actually consists of a new communication and two proposals for council recommendations, uh, respectively on childcare and long-term care, both of which have been endorsed by member states uh, very recently. And for those of our listeners who uh, are not familiar with the EU jargon, communications essentially serve to define the context for action programs and, and future policies, and recommendations are used to suggest a line of action uh, without imposing any legal obligation on member states. In other words, none of these instruments, um, so the package, the strategy package, uh, is actually uh, not binding on member states. Having said that, member states are usually expected to oblige the, the suggestions made as part of council recommendations. And as I said, these recommendations were approved by member states uh, a couple of weeks ago. If I may, I just want to build on what you said earlier in your introduction regarding the impact of Brexit and the fact that, of course, the UK is not part of the Union anymore. Uh, what we see based on, on our experience as an observer of, of the EU decision-making process, but also as a contributor wherever uh, we can, is that usually these strategies and these initiatives, they tend to inspire action beyond the EU. Uh, so, for example, Norway recently developed uh, a national care strategy, and it's a direct byproduct of the EU care strategy. We know also, based on previous initiatives related to care and caring uh, at EU level, that the British government also kept a close eye on, on those developments and, and maybe was also inspired uh, to, to develop um, you know, similar initiatives. Now, the strategy came about, in my view, for two main reasons. Uh, the first one is, of course, the fact that due to demographic aging, and uh, increased uh, longevity in Europe. We see a growing prevalence of age-related diseases, chronic diseases, a growing demand for care, and as a result, um, a pretty thorny uh, challenge in terms of the, the sustainability and the quality of our care services. And these challenges concern pretty, pretty much the entire uh, continent, so certainly all of the EU member states. So there, will, there is an added value in having some sort of a coordination mechanism uh, on, on care and caring at European level. The second reason, of course, is the pandemic, which has really uh, acted as a catalyst uh, by shedding light on the many limitations and weaknesses of our care systems, and there, therefore also on, on the urgency of reinforcing uh, these, these services. So 
the, the commission proposal, the package, uh, is a direct response to calls from various stakeholders, including the European Parliament, uh, civil society organizations, social partners, but also national regional governments. The, the, the strategy does not mean that all countries are expected to put the exact same policies and support measures in place, but at least uh, the strategy is a tool to ensure that all relevant uh, objectives um, are pursued by all relevant actors on both formal and informal long-term care. So the strategy is a great milestone, we believe, for the future of care and caring in Europe. It's very timely, actually. There's been a lot of focus on what needs to change in social care across all four nations of the UK. So in Scotland, um, obviously a real push to develop a national care service. Wales, lots of initiatives to improve working conditions. And uh, in Westminster, a House of Lords report looking at uh, social care and, and trying to really reframe it, thinking about making sure for unpaid carers that it's a real sort of genuine choice to want to care um, for their loved one, not something they're forced to do by a lack of availability of services. And also making sure that that social care support is seen as an enabler, something the title of the report is um, A Gloriously Ordinary Life. And I think that's a really inspiring, well, it's an ordinary but an inspiring vision that I hope, uh, I think lots of people across the sector very enthusiastically signed up to. So the timing of it, I think, even though, as you say, we're not a member state, I think hopefully there is that opportunity to learn um, from what's going on across many different European countries. And I guess so. From, from your perspective, it would be really interesting to hear in the Irish context, what is that added value that, that Stacey talked about that having an EU-wide strategy brings as opposed to kind of everybody, different countries go, just going off and doing their own thing with national strategies? So... Yeah, again, just, you know, this is the first time I'm speaking, so thank you very much for having me along. Um, I really appreciate it. And, and coming from the Irish perspective, you know, we've had a, a national care strategy here that focuses on uh, family carers, which is the term we use in, in Ireland, on family carers for the last 10 years, you know. So it's for us, it's really good to see something at a European level that we can use to build on what we've done before and what has been in place in an Irish context. A lot of the, the a lot of the the actions that were in, in our national care strategy are kind of part of this European strategy, or they're they're you know they're 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 linked if you know what I mean, or they're very similar. So it's really good to see that, but also as a policy officer, you know, I want to be able to use the European strategy to be able to show. Okay, you know, we're, we're, we're doing well, you know, on a policy level, but we need to keep going with it. We need to keep pushing. And I always like to, I like to call it ammunition. And, and I know that's quite an aggressive term, but all of these policies that I can draw upon in my discussions and, and working towards changing the services on the ground is really, really helpful because I think a lot of it, you kind of have to push from the top down on policy to get this, the bottom up services working well for family carers and for those that they care for. So from that perspective, that's the real, for us in Ireland anyway, that's how I see the real added value of the EU care strategy. And again, it, it, it kind of goes a little bit of a way as well to increasing that recognition of the work that family carers do just on a daily basis, which I think is really, really important. You know, it, we can't 
focus on that too much because there can be an awful lot of lip service you know there can be an awful lot of well we have a policy isn't that great you know and the whole point of it then is to figure out ways to action that policy which is a big bugbear of mine when it comes to policies in general you know we can have great stuff on paper but it's about actioning them and that's kind of where I always try and put my focus is on the at the actioning of those at a local level so anything we can do to put that pressure on our local and national actors and policymakers is so so helpful which is why it was so great to see this. And you remind me, a note on terminology is important for all of our listeners. So here in the UK and at the Centre for Care, I wouldn't say necessarily that everybody is using the same terminology consistently all the time, but certainly we, we tend to talk about unpaid carers to distinguish people who are caring for a partner, a family member, perhaps a friend or a neighbour, um, as opposed to um, somebody who's a care worker. It's their, it's their job, they're employed by an agency to go and support somebody. Whereas this, the EU care strategy talks about informal and formal carers. And, and Zoe, you've just mentioned the language of family carers. So I wonder if I could come to you, Stacey, to, to say a little bit about the language in the, in the care strategy and what's meant by that, those terms. Sure. And this is a very important point indeed. So we speak about informal carers. Uh, usually colleagues in, in Ireland speak about family carers indeed. And, and in the UK, you speak about unpaid carers. We're essentially talking about the same people. So family members, friends or neighbours who provide what we say in our definition, usually unpaid long-term care to a person with a disability, a chronic disease, or any other long-lasting care needs. So it could be an addiction, for example, outside of a professional context. So why do we speak about informal carers at EU level? Simply because at this stage, the majority of the existing legislation uh, at EU level, certainly international level as well, for example, the WHO or the OECD, um, well, it, uh, that legislation tends to refer to informal care or informal care. So in order to avoid confusion, uh, we tend to stick to that uh, wording. Uh, just in passing, uh, you know, based on the definition I just uh, shared with you, it is very clear there's actually no easy or no perfect uh, terminology uh, informal uh, care, well, there's, you know, some of my colleagues quite rightly would say that there's nothing informal about informal care. Um, you know, it's very demanding and very intense. When you speak about family care, well, what about friends and neighbours? Uh, and unpaid care nowadays in some countries and regions, uh, informal carers have access to some form of financial support. So, I mean, none of these... Um, wordings up you know is really um, meeting all or taking all the, of the boxes uh, of the definition so unfortunately uh, there's no there's no perfect uh, terminology thanks stacy and um, I, I think what, whatever terminology we use for me one of the real strengths of the, of the strategy is that it makes it very very clear that we can't look at either unpaid carers or care workers in isolation that they're two sides of the same coin and that actually most member states, if not all across Europe, have relied far too much on the unpaid labour of, of care, informal carers, family carers, and that this, this really needs to change. This isn't sustainable. It's not sustainable uh, on people in terms of their mental health, their physical well-being, how they're able to get by day to day financially, um, and that we really need to be thinking of the two kind of hand in hand. So I wondered if it's, this that certainly resonated with us in the UK. I wonder, Zoe, if that's something that you kind of 
equally recognised in Ireland. Absolutely. Of course it is. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is, is that you, I like to think of the caring experience <laughs> to, to, you know, use a bit of a flowery term, but as kind of, it's it's not just about one, two, or even three people. It's about kind of a, a whole system around somebody who requires support. And it's it's always mutual. It's, it's always, you know, it's never one way. It's it, it, Everybody gets cared for. Everybody cares for lots of different people. So whether, you know, you're a family member or a friend um, or a neighbor who's caring in that that way nine times out of ten there'll be some level of formal or state support in in some way certainly in ireland anyway whether that's you know home help or or you know home care or a pa service personal assistant there's usually some mix of that and if you discount one or the other then that whole balance gets just shifted you know so it, it doesn't, to me, it just doesn't make sense not to think about everybody in that relationship, the family, the wider family, the person obviously who is in receipt of care at the centre, and then all of these other elements around that that creates that experience where ideally people can live for as long as possible with support in their own homes and communities where they've always been or where they would like to stay as long as that's their choice, you know, and I think to do that, you need all of these different elements of care. And so when you're thinking about trying to find ways to enable people to do that, then you have to think about all those different elements. So to, to take one out of it, would just make it so unbalanced, it would be like taking family carers out of the loop of care. It just, it just doesn't kind of doesn't make any sense, you know. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who are in receipt of care, they don't necessarily, I, I always find in, in speaking to people, they don't necessarily want all of their care maybe to come from a family member because they're do you know they, they understand that family family members need breaks particularly when things are quite intensive and that's where then you know perhaps the more to use the term the more formal or you know the paid care I suppose comes comes into it um because it can get very very intensive um and you know you have an emotional link there when it's a family member that can get quite intensive you know so I think having breaks and that's where that that paid piece comes in, I think. I don't know, if Stacey, if you agree, but that's how I see it anyway. I completely agree. And, and actually, we have quite a lot of convincing data showing that there's no way around, um, you know, the combination of uh, professional and informal care in, you know, even if we wanted to try and replace informal care by professional care, uh, it would actually reveal completely impossible just for financial reasons. Uh, the value of informal care in Europe is so significant, so big, that actually trying to replace informal carers by care professionals would entail uh, more than doubling the current budget devoted to professional long-term care, which, was, which obviously is completely impossible because we're already struggling to maintain the current uh, budget for long-term care as is. So, yeah, so uh, we certainly need to maintain some level of informal care in the care mix. But at the same time, as it was mentioned by both of you earlier, we need to ensure that informal care is and remains a choice for informal carers as well. So people should be able to choose to what extent and whether they want to be involved in provision of of, it, of informal long-term care in the first place. And so we also need to invest uh, more proactively uh, in professional long-term care, good quality professional long-term care, 
in particular in community-based and home care um, in order to alleviate the so-called um, burden. Um, I'm saying so-called because some, uh, some of my colleagues don't like to speak about the burden of informal care. But, but at least to ensure that there are alternative options to the provision of informal long-term care. And the combination of the two, so alternative options to informal care and support to informal carers, will create an ecosystem where people are able to decide whether or not they want to be informal carers and to what extent they want to be involved in the provision of informal care, as I was saying before. So that's really what we're pushing for um, now. And the strategy, the UK strategy, explicitly recognizes um, the need of both options uh, and the need to boost both options. But at the end of the day, you know, um, we believe that informal care should supplement professional care and not the other way around. And unfortunately, in many countries, uh, at, you know, at this stage, um, uh, care systems uh, heavily rely on, on informal care. So that, that needs to be rebalanced, uh, that needs to be changed. So again, the strategy provides a great tool to at least guide member states towards um, this um, rebalancing. I think that is certainly a very, to me, that strikes me as quite actually for a lot of member states, quite a radical notion that's quite far from where we are today to say that people should have a free choice, whether they want to take on a caring role or not. And in particular, I think that would be quite radical in, for its implications in terms of gender equality. And that, that's a very strong theme that runs through uh, through the strategy that I think a lot of us would see as one of its real strengths. So I wondered it. It, what, what do you that to me that's really really stood out as the need to sort of redistribute caring responsibilities both in terms of unpaid care but also in terms of attracting men into the sector as well um i'd definitely pick that out as, as, as one of the strengths of the strategy um and i wondered for both of you perhaps a european perspective and, and within the irish context uh, what you think would be some of the key strengths of the strategy Sure, I'm happy to start. So yes, certainly the gender equality dimension is is very strong, very prominent in, in the care strategy. The ideas, at least on the side of the Commission, is, is fairly simple. Um, informal care is a major barrier to, um, in terms of um, women's ability to access the labour market or at least good quality full-time jobs. Um, many informal carers have to reduce their working hours and of course uh, a typical uh, informal carer in Europe is a, is a woman, usually between uh, 45 and 75, so uh, of working age. So given the also the limited uh, remit of EU institutions in the, uh, the field of employment and social affairs, it should also be said, it still belongs to member states to decide and, and, and shape their policies in those areas uh, as they see fit. But the role of the Commission is to coordinate between member states. So the Commission is really trying to use the, the policies where um, it has more power, let's say, so economic governance, access to employment, as an instrument um, to boost or to promote gender equality. So in that context, the care strategy is indeed used to say, okay, if we manage to rebalance um, the provision of unpaid care, both childcare and long-term care between the collective and individuals, then that will give more women a chance to access the labor market. 
But then, as I said before, again, we need what, you know, whether we like it or not, we'll need to maintain, a, you know, a share of unpaid care in the care mix. Uh, and so another way of boosting gender equality is also to uh, improve working conditions in professional care so to, to make sure that also more men uh, are attracted uh, to the sector uh, because obviously uh, the idea is that if you improve salaries, if you improve training uh, and working conditions, generally, um, you know, more men will be attracted to, to join the sector. So the, 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 strate the strategy also uh, includes quite a lot of, of objectives or, or principles uh, around, um, around these, um, you know, targets. Um, and we can expect that indeed member states, and, and again, by and large, uh, all European states um, will probably take more initiatives in those uh, areas in the future. Yeah, I mean, from, from an Irish perspective and from, from my perspective, I, I love data. And this is where the research bit of my policy and research role uh, comes in. And there's, I, I was really pleased to see a kind of a focus on data, on, you know, monitoring, on gathering information, on an, an onus on member states to actually review targets and look at things and, and make sure that, that, you know, the targets are being reached and that, that the work is being done. And for me, from a, at a policy level, you just have to have that built into any sort of policy action plan or anything that's related to, to, to honestly anything that's related to anything I know that's a very broad statement for me to make but that was I think <clears throat> that's one of the biggest weaknesses that we we have in our in Ireland we have lots of great uh, policies on paper and we uh, uh, a previous senator uh, senator uh, Kelleher She's no longer a senator, but she was fantastic and did an awful lot of work in disability and care in Ireland, in our in our national government. And she once said to me that Ireland has an implementation deficit disorder. Um, and I just really like that phrase because it just shows, you know, we've got great stuff on paper, but the implementation of it can fall down sometimes, you know, when governments change, when national frameworks change. And I think having a focus on monitoring and on evaluation and on data gathering at an EU level which obviously spans, you know, a lot longer than our national governments. I think that's so helpful. And I think it's so important for any, any plan like this to have that kind of built in is so important because without evidence, we can't know what we're doing well. We can't know what's being, what we can learn from other member states. And that's part of the whole point of, of the EU is to work, is working together and learning from the different member states and finding out, okay, you know, that's fantastic over there. Maybe we can, maybe you can replicate that here. Um, so I think that for me was one of the biggest strengths that immediately jumped out to me. There's lots of great stuff in it, you know, but I think, you know, like I said, you know, implementation is the key on this, you know, having it written on paper can only go so far for the actual, to make an, an impact on individual families, lives and individuals. And that's the whole point of stuff like this is to have impact. So without the evaluation, you know, how are you going to know what that impact is? So that for me was one of the, the bigger strengths um, of, of the strategy. I think the point you make about implementation is is absolutely key, isn't it? I think a, a cynic could say, well, it's all very well and good to have these strategies on paper that, you know, they sound, they've got their very lofty aspirations, but, you know, what's what's what difference is it actually going to make to somebody's real life on the ground? So I guess I, I guess I'd ask Stacey, that, that sort of implementation de deficit disorder, is that something you recognise kind of across Europe? Are there other countries you think that have, 
made um, much more progress in terms of actually making, you know, translating the aspirations on paper into action on the ground that we might be able to learn from. Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, generally speaking, I'd say that Nordic countries or Western European countries have probably been better or more active in the sector compared to other countries in Europe. But, uh, but again, we have good hopes that now with the strategy that will change for various reasons. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. But first of all, let me say that, you know, the fact that we now have an EU care strategy is not nothing. I mean, uh, it's it's a major achievement. And, and quite frankly, on, on our side, it took us more than 15 years, actually, to convince member states in collaboration with the Commission that there was an added value in having a coordinated approach on long-term care at European level. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's not easy to convince 27 member states to sit down together at the same table to discuss uh, common objectives. And now we have reached this point. But obviously, you know, as it was said by, by you, and, and I, I agree, the strategy is at the end of the day only a strategy. It's a, you know, it's a compass, it's a plan. Uh, it sets a direction, but now we, uh, we are yet to see uh, how that will be interpreted by member states, of course. Now, I believe the strategy could change a lot in terms of the, the gaps uh, when it comes to the implementation across member states and across Europe. Um, again, for various reasons. Besides the, the, you know, the list of common objectives and common principles, first of all, the strategy is accompanied by, um, by funding, which is always uh, you know, a, a very nice incentive for member states and stakeholders to try and comply at least with the, or, or try and achieve the objectives. So for example, th uh, through the structural funds, uh, member states will be able to access uh, uh, additional financial support as long as they can demonstrate that they are uh, doing their best to, uh, to implement the strategy. The same applies to stakeholders uh, and uh, to some extent also outside of the EU. The Commission is also putting quite a lot of money in, for example, uh, new research projects to collect additional data about, uh, among other things, the situation and needs of informal carers and, and um, uh, the identification also of potentially good or promising practices. So this is something for all of us to, to keep an eye on. And then the strategy is also, uh, also entails that member states will have to submit every year national action plans to monitor development and to keep track of, you know, of progress. And again, this is, uh, this is a voluntary process, but it's, it's a naming and shaming kind of exercise. Obviously, that means that every year uh, member states will probably meet, discuss progress, and those member states who have, haven't done so much maybe to, to implement the, the strategy um, will be diplomatically reminded by the Commission and fellow member states of the need to, you know, uh, to do more. And again, that's, that's, uh, that's very useful um, uh, when, again, bearing in mind the limited uh, um, role of, of EU institutions in those, in those areas. So again, the strategy, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't mean to sound uh, too optimistic or naively optimistic, um, but it certainly holds the potential to, to make a big difference. Thanks, Stacey. 
And thinking about putting together the National Action Plan in Ireland, Zoe, what will that process look like? Who will be some of the key people who will be involved? What do you think might be some of the, the quicker wins that you might be able to, to make progress on? And, and what do you think might be in Ireland some of the trickier areas or the bits that are going to be just much more challenging? To answer your first question, who will be involved and what would it entail, I actually don't know. I'm looking forward to finding out what it's going to look like because we, like I said, we've had a national care strategy here in, in Ireland for the last 10 years um, and it's really due for a renewal. So I don't know, like it didn't have, it didn't have, like I'm a big fan of policies having and strategies having a start date, an end date, a budget and an implementation plan. I think if you don't have those sort of three or four things, you know, it's 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 a hiding to nothing to, to use a phrase that we use in Ireland. Um, you know, you're not going to get much traction on it. So I, I do hope that the the action plans will tie into our national care strategy or that they can be they can overlap, you know, to try and make it a bit more efficient. You know, let's not let's not do too many things. Let's not, you know, have to do two or three different things at once. But I would love to see someone in Ireland have the, the main responsibility for caring and family carers in general, it, it kind of now, it, it sits uneasily in our political kind of policy landscape. It sits mostly through older persons, but then, you know, then, you know, through disability and then you have, Ill, you know what I mean? So it's 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 an it's an uneasy mix in Ireland of where it might fit. So I, I really don't know how that's going to be managed. I I do think that some of them, the, the, the quick, again, quick wins, I, I'm always, I'm skeptical of that term when it comes to policy, because something that's quick, I mean, I hate how long policy takes, you know, change takes, but when things are done quickly, I was kind of go, oh, are they done well? Like, are they done with the right kind of frame of mind, you know? Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff within the, the the strategy that actually Ireland is kind of already doing or is in the process of doing around work-life balance and that kind of stuff as well. So, you know, I think some of those will be, will kind of be encouraged to be finished up and, and, and in place a little bit faster. Um, but again, like a, a simple thing about that is that we have a, a piece of legislation in, in, in Ireland, it's the carer's leave, and it, it basically enables a, a person to take two years, up to two years um, of leave from their employment um, their job is kind of kept for them to go back to after they finish caring um, and then they get a, a, a you know a, a social benefit um, to, you know to keep them out of poverty while they're they're caring for someone who has an illness or a disability and the take-up on that is super super low and we don't really know why um in Ireland so I do kind of wonder going okay well what's what's that about and how is that going to map onto the work-life balance is there and how what's the appetite you know how how's that going to work so I, I really don't know, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. It's 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 a shifting landscape in in Irish politics at the moment. Um, you know, we have a coalition in Ireland that's our major. You know, government parties are all in coalition together. So there's kind of lots of big personalities, lots of big, you know, policy issues that are being worked out. So I I just I just don't know. Um, I think it, some of the challenges will be. I think the, one of the kind of in, in preparation, I kind of. The one that really stuck out to me is looking at the kind of how services are provided and making those changes. So there's there's a point in the in the strategy I just 
picked it out was like making the services accessible means that different working time patterns might require care at atypical hours, for example, for shift or night workers. And I can see that being a real challenge from a, a kind of a home care perspective in Ireland, because in general, it's very difficult to get overnight or nighttime home care. Um, it can happen, but it's very, very rare. It's usually between the hours of 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Um, weekends might be a bit tricky as well about the staff. So then you're kind of back to encouraging staff in to the sector, making it more, you know, appealing. Um, so I think that's that to me is a challenge. Um, I think a lot of it's going to be challenging, but that's no harm. I think if things are too easy, are you then really pushing the boundary of what can be done? Thanks, Zoe. So I think you um, pick up on a really important point there, which is about making sure that there are good measures to say that unpaid carers can have a really healthy work-life balance to make kind of juggling those different responsibilities in their life um, less less stressful, really. So uh, I wanted to to ask you what, what you both thought about what might potentially be one of the weaknesses in the strategy. And that's whether it focuses um, too heavily on unpaid carers of working age. I think often the conversation can be kind of focused around employment and providing unpaid care is sort of seen as, as a barrier to being a productive citizen. And I wonder if this is kind of a bit of an instrumental way of looking at things and, and if we might want to sort of um, frame the issue a bit differently. Yes. Well, first of all, um, again, let me reiterate that the strategy from our perspective when it comes to unpaid carers or the group, the, the group I represent is, is extremely comprehensive. Quite frankly, the Commission did manage to take all, pretty much all of the right boxes. In terms of the, um, you know, what the strategy includes when it comes to what needs to be done to support informal carers, the strategy calls on member states to do three things, essentially. First of all, put in place instruments to identify and recognize informal carers. Secondly, develop support um, mechanisms, uh, access to information, training, uh, counseling, respite, um, the need to improve collaboration between informal and professional uh, carers. And then last but not least, the need to provide uh, unpaid carers with financial support. So as you can see, it's, it's a very impressive and very good list of at least um, uh, ambitions. But, but you're right, obviously nothing is perfect and there are weaknesses um, uh, in the strategy. And the main one from our perspective uh, relates again to the mandate of the Commission, we, we think, the fact that it only has a limited limited sorry mandate in in the areas of employment and social affairs and it's um, it concerns the fact that the strategy primarily focuses on uh, carers of working age or um, informal carers who have to combine caregiving responsibilities with professional responsibilities and um, that comes at the expense obviously of uh, young carers uh, who are you know still uh, um, completely invisible uh, on the policy uh, agendas or older carers uh, and these people obviously you know also need support and they need to uh, and they deserve recognition um, and and we need to address their needs uh, as well um, so we are trying to encourage obviously the commission but also through the implement implementation of the strategy uh, we will uh, ensure uh, to support member states um, 
so that they expand maybe uh, the scope of the measures they are planning to put in place uh, to these um, subgroups of, of informal carers as well. So that's one very clear uh, weakness. Um, then in the run-up to the launch of the, of the strategy, um, high-level EU officials in charge of, of, of the dossier mentioned you know, several possible options uh, that we expected to be more prominently uh, included in the strategy. And then finally, they are mentioned, but only in passing. For example, the need to, um, to ensure that the time spent providing care to a loved one is also taken into consideration the calculation of pension credits. Uh, that's a very important support measures, uh, measure sorry, uh, that could or should be put in place uh, to support informal carers. And that's particularly, particularly important, again, in the context of gender equality and uh, the gender pension gap. Uh, so we are also working hard with uh, the Commission and in the future with member states to ensure that these uh, measures are also part of the package. Yeah, and then uh, again, I, I mentioned the need to, to uh, provide financial support to, uh, to informal carers. It's still interesting to see that in the strategy when you know, the Commission calls on member states to provide this financial support, uh, the Commission adds, um, as long as it does not deter informal carers from accessing the labour market, which shows that the assumption is still that if we provide too, too many support measures to informal carers and certainly financial support, some people may prefer to actually stay at home and take care of a loved one rather than having a, you know, an active professional life. And obviously, this is completely, I mean, the best evidence at our disposal shows the exact opposite. Obviously, most carers, when presented with the possibility to receive good, um, you know, a good level of support, including financial support, still prefer to maintain an active uh, social and professional life, obviously. Um, so, you know, there's still quite a lot of, uh, a lot of, of work to be done um, in convincing policymakers and changing mindsets and addressing this uh, false assumption that if we uh, provide too much support to informal carers, that will come at the, uh, you know, at the detriment of, of uh, you know, their money-making uh, activities or their, their willingness to, to be productive citizens, as, as you phrased it, Becky. So, great step forward with the strategy, but the battle is not entirely over yet. Um, still, a few things that need to be that need to be tweaked, I suppose, in you know as we implement the strategy. And from your perspective, Zoe, would you agree with some of those issues that Stacey raised in terms of what might be missing or what might be framed in a slightly problematic way? Yes, I, I have to admit, I was I was biting my lip not because I disagree with anything you said, Stacey. Just to be just to be clear. But um, that, that term in particular, productive member of society, I think is one of the most dangerous, it's one of the most dangerous things in this, in, when we're talking about this, because by saying, and I'm not, I'm not calling you out on that because that's the terminology that's so often used, you know, it's kind of like, you know, well, you can be a carer so long as eventually you're going to want to go back and, and make money for somebody, right? Like that's, that's the end game here. And it's like, in some ways, like what is, what is more productive than 
ensuring that someone is content and happy and that you are as well as a person not as a not as a, a potential worker but as a person you know what I mean and as a family that that works for you so I I really you know it's it's, da- it's dangerous to give me a platform so I'm really not gonna I could go on for a long time about that and um, so I, I'll save you all from that but I do think that's in general I I always get uh, concerned when I see that when I see the focus on you know, working age, because again, like Stacey said, it, it gets rid of an attention as so vitally important around young carers. It, it's a way it's, you know, it takes kind of, it takes older carers and particularly carers who are in there, who are caring for each other, if you know what I mean, like that, that idea that you are either cared for or you are a carer is so problematic because it kind of, it has this duality to it that, or it has this kind of binary thinking to it that I'm, I'm really not a fan of binary thinking anyway, but in this case, it's so dangerous because it's the idea that you can't be disabled and be a carer. You can't be older and be a carer. You can't, and I, you know, in, in my bio, I specifically said about that idea of intersectionality because you can be so many different things and being a carer is one section of it. And it's about trying to figure out balance between all of those that work for, for the person and for the family in general. So I, I always have a, a real issue when there's, there's you know, and it comes up in, look, it comes up all over the place. You know, this is not just a, an EU strategy, you know, issue. It, it, it certainly comes up, you know, a lot of the time, say, for example, you know, funding calls that come out for supports for organisations in Ireland are so often, you know, it's it's funding for people of working age to enable them to go back to get into the labour market. You know, this is real focus on that. And a lot of family carers, don't like that because and rightly so because it kind of it gives the insinuation that well you're not really working you're not really being productive you're not really you know a part of society you're not really doing this because you're not you're not actually working you know and it's like okay you 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 be on call for a sick person 24 hours a day seven days a week and see how much work it is you know so it's just it's it's a language thing it's a terminology thing maybe but i think it's so important because it, it kind of it hints at where the value is is really put in society so that that aspect of it is is quite problematic for me so i agree with i agree with what everybody said but i just that that idea of a productive member of society and almost divorcing that from being a family carer is so problematic thanks and i think i it, it comes back to that that broader point uh, that you were making earlier about about what we value um and and i think you can see perhaps low levels of pay and, and poor working conditions as kind of a reflection of how little value um, society puts on this really, really important work um, and kind of the consequences that has for people's well-being as a result. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you um, to both of you um, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk to you today. I guess finally, are there kind of any sort of final reflections you'd like to, to offer on the strategy um, before we wrap up? Yes, well, um... I would say that even though you're based in, presumably in the UK, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, um, keep an eye on the strategy. Uh, I think the strategy can be a useful tool and a useful inspiration to also encourage your own uh, government uh, to be more active on on the topic. Uh, Also, it's always useful to learn from other uh, member states. And I know, obviously, the Center for Care is is very active and instrumental in that regard. So, well, so yeah, keep an eye on the strategy, and obviously, we'll do our best to to keep you inform, informed as well. So, thanks again for the opportunity to to speak about the strategy today. 
and yeah, looking forward to the next steps of our uh, collective work then. Yeah. So Stacy just kind of said everything I was going to say, to be quite honest with you. So <laughs> I don't really have much else to add, except I, I definitely would agree. You know, I think one of the one of the big benefits of of being part of the EU and, and kind of this kind of, you know, you know, national international groups like Eurocares, for example, you know, we're a, we're a care alliance, we're a member of Eurocares and it's been so beneficial to learn from other places and other people and other member states and, and see what works really, really well, but also what doesn't work well. You know, I think sometimes we focus a little bit too much on, we have to learn from what's good. And like, actually, you almost learn more from what's not been working or has worked in the past and is now no longer fit for purpose. And I'd bring, for example, our, our Irish strategy into that. Like, it was really great when it when it came out in 2012 but it's a relic of its time now you know so I think that's really important to keep that in mind going ahead is that you know there's no we can kind of move and shift and, and move with the times and and I think the strategy I think is a good starting place for that maybe particularly when you take into consideration that hopefully the monitoring reports from the individual member states may be available for us to to look at and that that way then that would be a really great tool to be able to see from other places what people are doing and how things are being done. So, um, yo, and I just want to again say, you know, thanks for for the opportunity to come along. It's been it's been great actually. So, thank you for that. And perhaps we'll um, perhaps we'll have you both on again in five years' time, celebrating the enormous progress we've made um, across the EU. And I hope I'll be able to say that here in the UK, we've also learned a lot um, um, and, and implemented lots of um, measures that will improve people's well-being. So great, thank you very much. <laughs>